Good morning, everyone. As Pastor Eric Chappelle said, I'm, I'm the other Eric. Um, I have a, a quick little announcement here for after the service. We do have our student ministry will be meeting, but our students who have been so helpful in breaking down our worship equipment, you can leave it up because we have a worship practice um, right after the service. Um, like, like Eric said, I, we've been working together for about, what is it, four, four or five months now, and I've, I've learned before I buy anything, no matter how small, like I, ha- I don't have to do any research anymore, I just go to him and say like, I'm looking for a meat thermometer, which one should I get? So he's the go-to guy if you have any questions like that. We are in a series on the book of Colossians. I'm calling it first, and if you're new, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. Um, just to do a quick recap, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written, it's a unique letter in that it was written to a community that he had never visited. He didn't have a personal relationship with this church or with this community, but he had heard from them a report of how they were doing in their newfound Christian faith. And what he heard from them is that they were starting to struggle. They were experiencing some doubts, and they were all surrounding the question of, is Jesus enough? In their everyday lives, they continued to to struggle. They were wondering why their lives hadn't transformed overnight, why everything wasn't working out in all the areas of their life, and they were wondering, am I missing something? I thought this was supposed to be in a completely transformative faith, this new Christian faith that I have. Maybe there's something to get to the next level. Maybe there's something that I need to advance spiritually. And Paul wrote this letter to this church, to this community, and he had a fairly simple message. He said, no, you're not missing anything. Jesus is enough. So Colossians is a great letter. I would say it's, it's like a go-to letter for people who are new to Christianity. If you're exploring, if you're investigating the faith, and you, you still have questions, Colossians is a great letter. It's a go-to letter because it answers the question, who, who is Jesus really? And what is, what is the life of a Christ follower all about? What does it look like? Colossians is one of the most succinct and comprehensive and yet beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is and what it means to follow after him. Colossians is also a go-to letter for people, for Christians, who feel like, my life is full, as in busy. My life is full, as in I'm always moving to the next thing. But my life isn't full, as in full of meaning and satisfaction who have this nagging sense that is something missing. Something feels like it's missing in my life, and we're wondering, is Jesus enough? What am I missing? Colossians is a go-to letter, if you've ever experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing that this morning. Today we come to a part of the letter, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, that we just heard read, where Paul moves from what he talks about in, in chapter 2, which is mainly a series of warnings about what not to do to change, what won't bring you this full 
and meaningful life that you seek. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he moves from what Christianity is not to what Christianity is at its very heart, at its very core. He says, you want to live a full life here on earth? You want to live a, a truly and fully human life as God has designed you to live. Then, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above. In other words, he says, be as heavenly-minded as you possibly can be. And this will make all the difference. This will transform your life. You won't just do good things. You'll actually become good. You won't just do good things. You'll be a force for good. Good will come through you to where, whatever you do and wherever you go in the world. So that's what we're going to talk about. How is this true? If you're following along and you're taking notes, you have an outline there in your bulletin, we're going to look at three things. Why should we be heavenly minded? How we can be heavenly minded? And then the question, how does it bring earthly good to be heavenly minded? What Paul's saying in this transition point in Colossians, it's, it's the basis for everything he's going to say from this point forward in the letter. If you have your Bible, if you have it open, you can take a quick glance at chapters 3 and chapter 4. What Paul is saying here, if we get it, being heavenly minded, he says, will change our character. We will become good. It will diffuse our anger. He goes on to talk about that in the following verses. It will end lying and deceit. It gets to the root of greed. It actually gets to the root of lust. It brings kindness and patience and forgiveness into our lives. Not just doing good, but we actually become good. And we also become people who bring good into all of our relationships. Good will come through us into our households. He talks about this later in chapter 3, into our marriages, kids to parents, parents to kids, into our workplaces for our employers and if we're employees and manage people. He says, you will be a force for good the more you get what I have to tell you in these four short verses. But you might be thinking about this already. There's a serious problem or at least a serious objection to the whole idea of being heavenly minded by seeking the things above. And we need to address it. You might be thinking about this already. What is it? What's the problem? Well, as I was studying for this sermon this week, I was at a coffee shop, and I was, I was reading, I was typing, and all of a sudden I heard a song come on in that coffee shop, a song that was sung by Pentatonics, whom I love. It was beautiful, and the words to that song go like this, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Of course, Pentatonix didn't write that song. It's a cover of a song written by John Lennon of the Beatles called Imagine. And the whole point of that song that John Lennon wrote is that belief in heaven prevents us from living for today. 
So if we can imagine there's nothing above, there's no heaven, there's just a sky above, then good will finally come through us into the world. We need to get rid of the idea of heaven. That's the whole problem. He's not the only one who had this perspective and wrote a song about it. If you had a chance to look at the reflection quotes at the front of the bulletin, you saw another song written by Johnny Cash. Here's what he said. He said, if you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There are hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. So heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. So Johnny Cash, if you know his story a little bit, he's more friendly to Christian belief, but he's very critical of religious people or of Christians, he says, who are so heavenly-minded, they're completely ignoring the needs around them. They're not any good at all. So how do we respond to this problem, to these objections? How do I respond? Well, the phrase, some people are so heavenly-minded they are no earthly good, first response that this describes something that's true. They're onto something. People who talk and act super spiritually, who carry themselves in kind of a holier-than-thou attitude, who are very religious but don't care for the poor and the needy, who don't care about issues of oppression and injustice in our world, who don't care about the planet, who are anti-ecological, Christians who are focused and fixated on the end of time. When will Jesus return? What's the point of doing anything on earth? Because I'm going to heaven. And there are views of heaven, religious views of heaven, that actually can motivate acts of violence in order to achieve or receive future heavenly reward. All these reasons are why many people would say, heavenly-minded, more heavenly-minded, that's the problem. That's the problem with religion. And I would say there's a lot of truth there. But consider another perspective from C.S. Lewis. He says, look at history. And we're going to put a quote up here on the screen. So the Christians who did most for the present world, for the earth, were just those who thought the most of heaven. Examples, the apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this. He says, aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. It's from mere Christianity. So who's right? John Lennon and Johnny Cash or C.S. Lewis? If you've been here for some time, you know I love C.S. Lewis, so I think almost always C.S. Lewis is right. But in this case, I want to say both of them are right. Johnny Cash and John Lennon are right to the degree that our view of heaven is wrong. To the degree that our view of heaven is not in line with what Paul describes here in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. C.S. Lewis is right to the degree that our view of the things above, our view of heaven, is in line with what Paul says here 
in these four verses. Those who are the most heavenly-minded, rightly understood, are indeed the most earthly good. What Paul's saying about setting our minds on things above is something altogether than the, the, the main two different approaches that we're used to hearing about when it comes to heaven. That's why it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around this. There are two main approaches. When, when we come uh, to heaven, when we're thinking about heaven, there are two main approaches that we're used to. One is, we'll call it the religious approach, that you earn your place in heaven by being good here on earth, right? The religious approach. You earn your place in heaven by being good here on earth. There's, there's a joke. There was a pastor who was explaining the idea of heaven to children. He was encouraging them to be good. He ended his lesson. He thought he did a really awesome job being very clear and speaking to these kids. And he said to the kids, all right, let's review. What do you need to do to go to heaven? And one of the kids shot up and said, you need to be dead. <laughs> this pastor was looking for, you need to be good. That's the religious approach. But in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul says that's not Christianity. That's not the approach I'm talking about. That approach doesn't work. Any way of living that is based on earning your way to heaven, on earning the blessings of heaven, inevitably, inevitably brings judgmentalism, the dividing of the world into two, us versus them, the condemning of those who are outside, who aren't good enough, who haven't earned their spot. He says religion enslaves people, controls people, suppresses freedom and fullness. So there's another approach. The other approach is to say, yep, that's the problem. There is no heaven. This earth is all there is. If the first one is the religious approach, we could call this the secular approach. There's no outside greater reality, and if there is, we don't have any access to it. We don't know anything about it. It's beyond us. So let's just worry about life in the here and now. You could be agnostic, atheistic, or just a plain practical down-to-earth person and hold this view. So we might say the religious approach to heaven doesn't make the world better or more harmonious or more united. It makes things worse. But getting rid of heaven altogether, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem either. If this life is all there is, there's just as much reason to exploit the earth in order to get as much as we can in the here and now. There's just as much reason to oppress other people to our advantage in the here and now, because we got to get the most out of life. This life is all there is. There's just as much reason not to do good and to be selfish as there is to do good. There's no ultimate authority. There's no ultimate accountability. If this earth is all the reality, there is. So back to our text. According to Colossians 3, the gospel is something entirely different than approach 1 and approach 2. Paul says here, you can only be good. You can only bring good to earth if you already have a place in heaven. Not if you earn it to go there when you die. 
Not to get rid of heaven altogether. You can only be good. You can only bring good if you already have a place in heaven. Not by earning your place there, but by faith in Jesus. You're welcome there now and forever. And it's a gift. It's entered into simply by trust in Jesus. So why should we be heavenly-minded? It's heavenly-mindedness, properly understood. That is the way we become good, Paul says, and bring good. But what is it? What is this heavenly-mindedness? How do we seek and set our mind on the things above? Five times in the letter to the Colossian church, Paul uses the word heaven or the phrase heaven. Here he uses the phrase the things above as a synonym for heaven. If heavenly mindedness is key to becoming earthly good, how? How does it work? How do we become heavenly minded people? Well, we need, we need two things. First, we need to get a right view of heaven. And Paul offers a corrective on our wrong views of heaven or our misconceptions of heaven in this text. A few quick things we need to know about heaven. Heaven is not just future. It's now and future. So when we're talking about being heavenly-minded, sometimes we think, oh, am I supposed to think about what heaven will be like? Are there going to be clouds there? Am I going to get a harp? Is there going to be food there? Is there going to be surfing and golf or whatever your favorite thing? Who's going to be there? What's it going to be like? That's a part of it. But that's not what Paul is talking about here mainly in this text. Secondly, heaven is not only where you go when you die, it's where you go when you believe in Christ. You might say, what? How does that work? But look at what Paul says here. He says, you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is. If I've been raised with Christ and Christ is above, then in some sense, I'm with Christ now. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So a Christian, somebody who has faith in Jesus, is already in some sense in heaven. And so the main question here is not, will I go to heaven when I die? It's, will I do God's will on earth as it is in heaven while I live, while I'm on this earth? The third correction that Paul offers us here is that heaven is not an escape from earthly things. It's the place to go to see earthly things as God does. Earlier on in the, in the first chapter of the book of Colossians in chapter 1, Paul says Jesus is the creator of all things. By him and through him and for him are all things crea- created that have been created. Things on heaven or things on earth. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, Through him God reconciled everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So these things created by, through, and for Jesus, earthly things, these are things that are worth dying for. These are the things that Jesus died for in order to reconcile, in order to restore to himself to their proper place and purpose. So first we need to get a right view of heaven. But secondly, and this is the main thing Paul is talking about here in this text, is we need to get a view from heaven. We need to get a view from heaven. 
And when Paul is talking about the things above here, he's not talking about a, a place. We're not supposed to imagine heaven as a place that's beyond the clouds, somewhere out in space, somewhere beyond the reaches of the galaxy. That's not what Paul is talking about here as, as a place or a space. He's talking about an, a reality, a reality that's outside and above our reality, what we experience from a human perspective and vantage point. So an illustration. Let's think about it like this. It's the difference between an aerial viewpoint or a street view. So if you go on Google Maps and you need to find somewhere where you need to go and you type that address in, you can get one of two viewpoints. You can get the street view, which will show you a picture of that place, or you can get the aerial view, which shows you the map and where it is in relationship to other things. When we get up above things, when we get an aerial view, that changes our perspective. Last week, Amelia and I had uh, the chance to fly to San Francisco. And, you know, it's been, I'm going to sound like a, a grumpy Southern Californian, but it's been a little cloudy here. Like, what is this May gray? And so the clouds were just covering uh, over everything when we took off and we flew up. And if you've ever flown, you, you know this experience. You get high up above the clouds and it's like this blanket of clouds is underneath you and the sun is shining and the sky is blue and you're up above the clouds. And that never gets old. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Another example. One thing I love to do is to go hiking in Peter's Canyon. And if you know Peter's Canyon, it has some, um, some hills. You get up high and you get a really cool vantage point. Uh, from, where, from where I usually go hiking, you can see like all of Irvine, you can see Tustin, you can almost see to the ocean on a very clear day. And whenever I'm hiking or running or walk running up there to the top of that vantage point, I always stop. And it just it causes me to pause and just regain perspective. I always stop there and go, wow, look, like this is where I live. Look at all the people who live here. It's a place, a great place for me to pause and pray. When we get that aerial perspective, it changes the way that we see things. The other option is the street view. If you type in the search to Google Maps and all you get is the street view, you're searching for it and says, here it is, this is the place you're looking for. You have no idea how to get there. If you went searching for it, you would get lost. The things above. Paul says this is like an aerial view on life. It's seeing others. It's seeing yourself. It's seeing the whole world, how God sees it, how God sees you, how God sees other people. Not just as they are from a human perspective, but seeing things as they are meant to be seen from the perspective of God's truth. It's getting a view of reality of all of our lives. This view from heaven, this view from above. Here in, in Colossians 3, he says, here are the two things. When you get this view from above, here's what will happen. If you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, what will happen in, when you get that aerial view? Your life, your mind, your heart will be filled with two things. What is true of Jesus and what is true of me. And you'll see how those two things 
are joined together. How does that work? Well, the life of Jesus, that perfect, beautiful, powerful life, the life of perfect holiness and strength, yet love and compassion and mercy. Paul says, the view from above, you'll see it's your life. That life, the life of Jesus, he lived it in your place. It's your life. He says, Christ, verse 4, who is your life. The life of Christ is yours. The death that Jesus died, the death he died to sin. The death that Jesus died to bear shame and guilt, to break a hold of all the old ways of living that destroy, that disintegrate, and that divide. Paul says, the view from above, you'll see it's your death. You died to those things. He said, I died. When did I die? He said, you died with Christ. Sin has no hold over your life. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that invincible and indestructible life that reorders things, that restores things to the way God had intended all along for them to be. The life that breaks out against darkness and death and brings light and hope. It's your resurrection. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, to the place of all authority in the universe, the place of closest intimacy to God the Father. You can go there anytime. You actually belong there. That's where you belong. If you're a Christian, all this is what's most true of you. What's true of Jesus is true of you. It's who I am. It's my life. There is no me apart from Jesus any longer. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it's my life. Paul says, be mindful of this. Think about it. Make it your focus. Work it into everything in your life. Don't think of yourself. Don't think of anything apart from thinking about this. Set your heart on it. Seek it. Put all of your thinking wrapped around it. This gets us to the very heart, to the very center of Christianity, to the gospel. And we have to get this, that the power for being good and bringing good to the world is not us trying to live like Christ. It's not our effort in trying to live for Christ. The power for being good and bringing good is us living in Christ and with Christ. That's it. This is the heart. This is the center of the Christian faith. If we don't understand that difference and that distinction, it's not living like Christ, first of all, or for Christ. It's living in and with Christ. Then it won't work. We'll be wondering, like the Colossians were wondering, what am I missing? Paul says, you're not missing anything. It's all there with Jesus. What's true of him is what's true of you. Okay. Here's where you might be thinking, I think I get what you're saying. I think I get it. But it, it sounds a little, still sounds ethereal to me. 
It sounds, it sounds esoteric. How does a mindset like this actually practically bring earthly good to the world? How does it make a difference in a world full of need and injustice and in the challenges that I face on a day-to-day basis? Here's my answer to that. It's in here in the text. The answer is this. Heavenly-mindedness keeps earthly things, earthly goods, from becoming your life. Only when our life is not found in earthly things can we bring earthly good. That's the practical difference. Let me explain it. When we, are, we already set our mind on something. We're already seeking after something. Just like Pastor Eric said, we're, we're seekers. We're searchers. We're setting our mind on something. And that something, that thing we're seeking, that's our life. That's what we're building our life on. That's what we're seeking life in. What is that thing? How do we know what those things are for us? We need to know what they are because Paul says it won't work. You need to say, that's not my life. This is my life in order for this to work. So what is our life? Well, it's that thing you think about the most. It's the thing you don't even have to to think about seeking. You're seeking it. Your mind is set on it. You have to have it. You can't lose it. If you do lose it, you lose your life. It ruins your life. It's not just ruining your day. You don't just have a bad day or a month. It's the thing that if you lose, you feel like, I don't have a life anymore. Who am I? A few ways to tell where that is for us is to ask, where and when am I most insecure? Where and when am I most afraid? Where and when am I most discouraged? and cynical? Where am I just so deeply insecure and why? Where am, what, am I so, what, am, what are my fears, my deep fears? And where am I cynical and deeply discouraged? Those things happen when the thing that is our life is being threatened or we feel like it might be lost. When we're secure, when we're insecure, when we're controlled by insecurity, when we're ruled by fear, when we're hardened by discouragement, we won't be earthly good. We can't be earthly good when our life is filled with those things. So to be free from our lives being defined by insecurity, by fear, and discouragement, we have to say to those things, you are not my life. You are not my life, whatever it might be, if it's our career or our work if it's our success, if it's our grades or our friends or our popularity, if it's our kids or the well-being and the success of our kids, if it's a relationship and a marriage, these are good things. These are good things. But they're not meant to be our life. Only God is meant to be our life. We say to those things, you are not my life. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is my life. And when we do that, here's what happens to our lives. Here's what happens. We gain access to an absolutely secure life. An absolutely secure life. Paul says here, your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And what he's saying is that people who are the most heavenly-minded, the most heavenly, they're not the most showy people. They're probably not the most popular people. They're not famous for their holiness. They're not wowing people with how religious and awesomely religious they are. They are the people who are the most unaware that they're holy. It's hidden, even to them. For Christians, for those who believe in Jesus, our true self, it's not how others see us. It's not the opinion of other people about us. It's not how we see ourselves. Our true life, our true self, is hidden with Christ in God. It's how God sees us, not how others see us, not how we see ourselves. That is the cure for our insecurities. You are who God says you are. You are the person whom God sees. And whatever is true of Christ is true of you. That's the cure for our insecurities. So freeing. There's another aspect to this, to this security, to this hiddenness. Why do you hide something? If I said, hey, we're going to do this thing, we're going to turn to our neighbor and, and we're going to tell them, here's something that I hide. Here's something that I hide, like in my house, an object or something. What's something that, an object that you have, a possession that you have that's somewhere hidden? If I said, turn to your neighbor and share what that is, most of you would be like, I don't know if I want to do that. Secondly, if I said, tell them where you, you have hidden this precious and valuable object to yourself, you would say, no, I'm not going to do that either. The reason we hide something is to keep it safe and secure. We lock it in a safe. We put it in a bank. We put it somewhere where nobody can get to it or find it. Let me ask you this. What is more secure than hiding something in God? Paul says here, your identity is so secure and so safe and unassailable, it is hidden in God himself. Your life, your identity, it can't be damaged. It can't be changed. It can't be taken away from you. Not because of what you do, how much you fail or succeed, or what others think about you or what you think about yourself. It's because it's hidden, secure in God. It's secure for our insecurities. Christians can be the most secure people in the world because of this. Not living to prove ourselves to ourselves or others, and secure people, secure people are freed up to do good, to bring good to the world. This life is also an incredibly bold life. It's an absolutely secure life. It's an incredibly bold life. Paul says, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God, that's the place of authority and intimacy. It's the place of control. It's the control center of the universe. You can't get any closer to God than that. Now, people who are always trying to control things and control other people and control their circumstances, what are those kinds of people like? Maybe you're one of those kinds of people, because I am, so I know what these kinds of people are like. Often they're either anxious because you can't control everything or they're arrogant because they're like, I got control of everything. Things are working according to my plan. Anxious and arrogant people don't bring good into the world, but bold, confident, calm people, they bring much good to the world. Quick trivia fact. Psalm 110, Psalm 110 
is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted right here in verse 4. Sorry, in verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 110.1 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Bold, calm, confident people bring the most earthly good to the world. Not those who always have to be in control, who are anxious about it, or arrogant about controlling everything. We know we are not in control, but Jesus is. And we get that perspective. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has got this, so I can be bold. I can be calm, no matter what's going on around me. And from that calmness and that boldness, we can do much good. Lastly and finally, it's an unshakably hopeful life. Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You know, because this life is hidden, we can't quite see all that Jesus is doing in us and through us. We often get discouraged. We wonder, am I doing enough good? Am I good enough? We get overwhelmed with our fears. We get bogged down with disappointment. We can become cynical out of our discouragement. But the people who bring the most good to the world are those who can recover from cynicism and not get stuck in discouragement at the state of their own life and the state of the world, but those who are full of hope. Hopeful people bring the most good to the world because they know. They know evil, suffering, injustice will come to an end. Jesus will complete what he began. Jesus will finish what he starts. So we can be unshakably hopeful. Christ, who is our life, will appear, and we will also appear with him in glory. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. This will unleash a force for good in us and through us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, often our perspective is so very limited. We are so very wrapped up in earthly things, our life, our circumstances, our to-do lists, some of the ways we're, we're suffering, very real suffering, the challenges we face. And so this message, it's compelling, it's inviting to us, but it's, it's hard for us also to trust. That if we seek the things above, if we set our heart and mind on the things above, then we can be absolutely and truly renewed with great security, with great hope and boldness. And I pray that you would enable us, as we have heard this, to learn to put this into practice. For those who don't know you, who might be here, who have not yet put their faith in you, I pray that this would be that time, this would be the day 
that they trust in you to know what's true of your son Jesus is true of them. For your people here who have placed their faith in Jesus, I pray this would bring great encouragement to our hearts and souls. And as we come to this table that you have set before us, that you would use it to nourish this life in us, to change our perspective, whatever it is that we're facing that is the most hard thing, the thing we can't figure out, the decisions we can't come to a choice on, the suffering that we're going through. I pray as we come to this table, we would gain your perspective. We'd see these things. We'd see ourselves as you see us. Work that truth in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.